Why are leather jackets so cool? From Marlon Brando to Iggy Pop, there's something about a perfect leather jacket that all of us want to have. Look, it might be the life of the person wearing it, but for me, a leather jacket might be the most transformative piece of clothing I've ever owned. You put it on and you just feel like, I got this. And my guest this week, well, she definitely gets it. She also makes it. My name is Jeremy Kirkland, and this is Blamo, a podcast exploring the world of fashion with the people who shape it. My guest this week is Savannah Yarborough, founder and designer of Savas. Savannah and I discuss her journey from remaking t-shirts as a teenager to founding her own bespoke brand. And along the way, she competed in extreme rollerblading, hung out with the Hells Angels, studied at Central St. Martin's, led menswear design at Billy Reed, and discovered the transformational power of a leather jacket. Savannah Yarborough, you're a, a person, but you're also like the head of a brand and like the face of a brand. And it feels like that's a very intentional yes. thing yes, for you. Yes, it is. It's complicated. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well, what do you mean? Well, um, you know, the reality is, is I want to be known for what I do and what I create. Um, but I also know that me personally and my attitude and the way I handle things is the best selling tool that we have. There's no like... Like if we get an email and some clients like on the fence and not sure, you know, if he wants to order or what he wants to order, rather than going back and forth on emails with my assistant 10 times, I'd rather just pick up the phone and have a conversation. And then I know the deal is done and that he's going to end up buying something because of the way I, you know, share about what we do. Well, do you think that also has to do with the fact that you're if you're the person making it. I think so many people now, like, we, you know, we were talking before we recorded in terms of the the interaction between brand and consumer. Like, I, I, I am more interested in brands where I can have a direct relationship with the maker. Mm. You know, it's why I've always loved Italian suiting in, you know, say like Antonio Liverano. It's like I would get measured and the person who was making my sport coat or my jacket did the measurements and I got to talk with, you know, the artist. Right, right. Instead of six different layers or things that were distilled down and down more for the Yeah, mass. I mean, that's the, it's an interesting situation for us because like when I first launched, I was the only person, right? And I have since had to grow just because making, you know, four pieces a month very slowly and taking a year to deliver like doesn't really suit many people. And I also am super young, right? So, like, I know how to do everything because I've done it for the thousands of hours. But I also know where my limits are. And sometimes, you know, we do have other people doing certain parts of things because ultimately I want the quality to be the best instead of me being like, I'm going to make it. And if I'm going to mess it up, then I'd rather not be the one to make it, right? Sure. Yeah, no, that so makes, that makes a lot of, of like, sense. My hands are in everything, but I'm not necessarily making each piece in full anymore. Also, because now like we have made to measure, right? Like we have all these different levels, but with the bespoke stuff, it's all done right here in house by me. You know, like that's that's what you're paying for with that service, um, which right. is very you know different than the made to measure service. 
Yeah. And I think too, and this is the thing that so many brands and people forget about is like, if you want a brand to stick around and, and keep existing, it's very different. It's very difficult. Like what you were saying is if it's solely dependent on one person, because in some cases you're like, no, this is just a hobby and this is how they're making their living where it's like, no, it feels good to employ other people. Absolutely. To pay people a fair wage to, to do that. Absolutely. And also too, like the craft in America is dying. I mean, trying to find people who have this skill set is damn near impossible, you know? And like, we've been trying forever to find the right people. And it's like, sometimes they come, sometimes they go, and I can't ever really depend on that. And so I have to think too, like, how can I contribute to the actual bigger picture, which I really care about, which is keeping this craft alive. So like if we're going to do a ready to wear piece and have that made, you know, in New York, which we do sometimes, like right now we're working on a couple of women's pieces that we'll make 12 of. And I don't have the capacity to make 12 of anything. Um, Mm -hmm. And so with that, like, I know that I'm contributing to employing six tailors instead of just fighting the fight for myself. Like I'd love to be able to contribute to paying those people and keeping them around. Cause once they leave a job, like there used to be hundreds of leather tailors in New York city, you know, and when like back before G three left and everyone was making in New York and those people are gone and they're not going back. What? Let me, let me, Go off to the side here. Wait, what is what's the difference between a tailor and a leather tailor? Well, it's an entirely different skill set, right? It's different tools, it's different machines. Um, it's also like there's no correct correcting, you know, like with a suit, it gets basted together for your first fitting, and then it happens again when they put the canvas in, you know, all of those steps. Like with leather, we don't have a chance to do that, right? So we make canvas garments like muslin canvas. Um, and that's what we use as fitting. But like when we cut the leather, that is what it is. You know, we can't really let it out. Mm. I mean, we do make alterations, but a lot of times, like yesterday, I was working on a jacket where like we're putting new sleeves on, right? Like mm. it's not like, oh, we're going to tweak that sleeve because the sleeve cap is a little too narrow. It's no, that has to come off. We've got to recut a new sleeve and put it all back in. So right. it's it just requires a, a totally different thing. Like when I sit down to work with fabrics, I'm terrible because everything reacts differently and you have to know how to understand different types of leather and how they react and the ones that stick to the machines and the ones that stretch too much and how you structure behind, the, you know, all there's like so many right. levels to it that you really have to just go down that lane and learn that and then that's it right right well let, let's let's jump back here so where exactly i mean you're you're in nashville right now but where are you from originally? i'm from birmingham alabama originally yeah. okay yes and so what what was i mean were you always into clothing i mean because you you know you you have very much the the pedigree background of like csm and all. yeah that. so i um As a teenager, I definitely was into clothing, but I was more like, I've always been super into t-shirts, which has been since way back. And Mm -hmm. I never could get the t-shirts that I wanted that fit me. So I started off by like chopping down these t-shirts and working in my mom's 
office in the basement, like learning how to sew. Um, but, you know, like in the 90s in Alabama, creativity was not what it is today. Like we didn't aspire to be artists or designers. Like I didn't know that being a fashion designer was a job. Um so when I realized, I actually met some friends in Southern California, and one of the guys was like, you should go to FITM, I think he said. He was like, I know all these girls that go to school there. Like, you you seem like them. Like, you should go do that. And I was like, huh, I don't I don't know. Wait, what were you doing in Southern California? Um, I was visiting there with a friend. I had, I had oh, friends. Okay. I was, um, in my past life, I was a rollerblader, um, which has, like, it's a total side story, but... Um, has proven to be that so many relationships I developed when I was a teenager through that world, that they come full circle like once a month. And it is unbelievable, (laughs) like how intertwined it all is. Okay, wait, hold on. (laughs) So you were a rollerblader. What do you mean by rollerblader? Like Like X Games. Racing? Like jumping and tricks. And yeah, yeah. I started that when I was like eight years old and I gave it up when I was – Turning sixteen, I think. Um, so you were like a a, a teenage X Games. Are you no. kidding me? Man. It was it so was wait, amazing, what? but totally bananas. Like I was obsessed. I mean, my dad would drive me to the skate park every single day, and I would skate from like four p.m. till they closed at nine. Like that was my. That was where I made my friends. That was where, you know, I learned, yeah. like, life, basically. Mm-hmm. And, of course, all those ju- – like, I-, I was the only girl, you know. Um, yeah. There were – so, anyways, my dad would travel with me to all these competitions. So, we went all over the place. And he was so, like, dedicated because he knew that's what made me happy. And, like, I was definitely, like, the weird art kid at school, Whereas in okay. this crowd, I fit in and everyone, you know, that's where I had all of my friendships. Wow. Yeah. And so all during this time as you're you're cutting it up, doing handrails <laughs> or whatever it is. Wait, were you, okay, just humor me here. Were you doing the half pipe or were you doing like street, street stuff. stuff? Street stuff. Because I was too little. Okay. Like my, I was never strong enough to do like proper half pipe. Because I'm little. I'm like five wow. foot one, you know, and I was like a little beanpole then. Um. So I loved a mini ramp and I loved a street course. That's so – my head's like exploding. All <laughs> I know. It's one of those things I like Man. try not to talk about. But then it kind of plays – That's, that's it amazing. It kind of plays too big of a role, you know, uh, with these friends and, you know, all these other people like that kind of like really go full circle. Uh, okay. Yeah. Well, I would I would say it is wise to never run from your past. Yes. Especially when it's something as cool as doing what you're doing. <laughs> yes. That's awesome. So during this time, you're kind of getting really into clothes and and specifically T-shirts and all that. So when I found out that there was a thing called fashion school, okay, I started looking into it. And at that time, I think I was 17 um, and I was getting ready to go. Uh, I started at Alabama doing pre-law because that was like normal career path. No, for, that's not normal yeah. career path. Well, in my family, like, that seemed reasonable. And I was like, oh, I could be, like, a criminal defense attorney. Whoa. And I loved watching CSI, you know. So I was like, I'll go do that. I lasted for, like, three months. I worked at this firm and did all the billing for, like, divorce cases. And I was like, this is a terrible life. <laughs> so I quit. I, like, moved back home. I lived, like, 45 minutes away. And 
that was sort of right after this guy had said, you should go to fashion school. And then so I started exploring. And the only reasonable job in fashion that I could comprehend and that my family could comprehend was being a writer, right? So I was like, this school in San Francisco has a fashion journalism program. Hmm. I'll go do that. And I can write like people paid me to do their essays. Like I'm good. I can do that. And then so I moved to San Francisco that December. Mm-hmm. And um, the first day of class, I showed up and they someone was in there that wasn't the teacher. And they were like, we're no longer offering a fashion journalism program. <laughs> Come to find out the guy who had been hired to lead that program got caught like doing cocaine with a bunch of students. And so oh. they had no one to, to like take over. As one does. So they were like, we've replaced your journalism class with design. Oh. And I was like, I, I don't, you know, like I don't design. I don't know what that means. And so I kind of had no choice in the matter. And then had a really amazing teacher who sort of knew how to pull things out of me. Wow. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, yeah. so you go from rollerblading to pre-law to journalism to design all within yes. how how many years three within two? a year within no a year. a year it was like all like summer of one year that would have been summer of 2005 okay yeah to i moved to san francisco in december of 2006 okay right i think yeah yeah that's well, right apparently you were somewhat into design right because you, you didn't leave the class you didn't just quit and go home no so i had this amazing teacher everyone was terrified of him his name was pat spazano and he was like this total ball buster like you know he was like if you're gonna do research like any monkey can sit on google and mind you this was 2006 so like libraries you know all there was real life out there for mm-hmm. us to you know and he was so adamant about what your research was and so he showed me that world which then like i'm a pretty literal thinker um and so it sort of put me in touch with like how to get out of that and how to turn experience into inspiration um can you give me and an i example? was actually well like i think the first project i ever did it was so terrible um I wanted to do, like, I found all these cool images of old farms. And he was like, have you been to a farm in California? I was like, no. And he was like, well. So then I, like, found a friend who had a family farm. And we drove, like, two hours away. And I went out and shot all these photos different times a day and all sorts of stuff that was going on. And, I mean, it was a terrible outcome. But at the same time, it introduced me to that kind of research and, like, really understanding what that meant Mm. and um like with let's see my third semester is when i did a men's class um and he was also the teacher there but for that i really wanted to do i was you know living in san francisco i was like hell's angels like i want to know everything about the hell's angels and there's like no information and so like i ended up like riding on a motorcycle for the first time i had a fake id so i went to a hell's (laughs) angels bar as like a 19 year old or 18 year old and just like hung out and had a beer, like watching them. This doesn't you know, seem very safe. It, it definitely wasn't, <laughs> you know, I didn't tell anyone what I was doing. Um, but that really like changed everything about the way I feel. And it's, it really created this foundation for me in terms of like, where do my ideas come from? And it's really is life. Yeah. And you kind of have to go, like, all in. Well, but it it definitely speaks to 
I don't know if it's a relationship you had with your dad or what, that you don't have any fear to jump into things like this. You're not waiting for validation. You're just kind of doing it. Well, I'm not going to get any information from someone else, right? Like, I'd rather see and know for myself. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, like, I'm kind of the maniac of the family. And what's funny is, like, my parents, like, have basically lived in the same town their whole lives. Mm. And I'm just this, like, flailing, oh, guys, I'm moving to London. School starts in six weeks. And they're like, the fuck? Like, what are you doing? <laughs> you know, like, oh, okay, we'll figure that out. You find a job, you know. Um, well, that brings us to London. So you're you're in, you're in SF. And then what, what mm-hmm. makes you want to go to CSM? So that same teacher, like, when he, when I tried when I did the menswear program, like at sort of towards the end of that, um, he said to me, he was like, look, there's there's no money in the men's program. Like, I don't know that this is going to be where you need to be. Like you're, you know, I was the most obsessed, like insane person. I was that student that was just like nuts. And he was like, you should go to Parsons or go to St. Martin's. Like if you get into either, go and don't think about it because like you need to go somewhere else. Mm. He no longer works there. I don't think that's why. Um, <laughs> He's like advocating for but, students to leave. But he pushed me to do that. And I really, you know, I had been to New York um, as a teenager. And I had also been to London once um, and been really inspired. That was like this, the December before. Mm-hmm. And um, so St. Martin's was all I tried for. And I got in, but I got into the... Um, crap what do they call it the foundation degree which is like before the bachelor's degree it's like a general art program Hmm. that you kind of like focus your way through and like narrow down what program you want to be in but you have to like apply every month to get to the next level of um the foundation degree trying to get into the fashion foundation and did you do it yeah all right there you I go. did. Um, I was the first person there. The morning to apply for fashion uh, was like in May that year. Like it was you had already gone through the whole year of like 3D art and this and that. And I we had to leave our portfolios and um, I was the first person in line, you know, put my portfolio down. And then when I left all the way around the building, all the way down the stairs, every single person, there were like 500 people leaving their portfolios. Wow. In that room. Because that's the only reason. I mean, people go to St. Martin's for fine art as well, but like fashion is it. Mm-hmm. And it was super cutthroat and bizarre. Yeah. Um, and you just left your portfolio there for a week and then they would call groups of people into a room and then they were like, you got in to fashion one. And we were like, everyone's like screaming, yeah. <laughs> like ridiculous. So what was that like? Um, you know, it was scary. Like I had to start over, right? So I had already been in school for two years and I had to kind of lose all that, move to London, not knowing if I was ever going to get into the BA. So I kind of knew it could either be a, a permanent thing or a temporary one year. And I was like, well, it's worth it to go and, and try. Um, you know, and I think I was so naive in so many ways that I was just open for whatever. And, you know, there were no other Americans in my class, like there were very few. And I just kind of went whole hog into life. It was all just like exciting. Right. And and it was also so creative. Like you were surrounded, you know, totally surrounded by creative people doing crazy stuff all the time. And 
um, you know, it was kind of one of those other times where I was like, oh, yeah, like I'm kind of normal. Yeah. You know, but like if you're normal at St. Martin's, you are not normal to the rest of the world. Uh-huh. Like, <laughs> um, and I was always the commercial one. You know, they were like, oh, yeah, Savannah, she's the commercial one. Like I got sort of pushed down in that way. Wait, what does that mean? What, what is the commercial one? Well, because it's like so conceptual and they push you to be, you know, designers and break boundaries and like dig down deep in that way. And I always kind of had this like commerce side, you know, like I wasn't going to try to create like bizarre shapes or anything else. Like if I was doing a project, it was it was going to be wearable, mm. you know. Um, and so... Like, they supported it, but at the same time, it was just always funny. Like, they knew what I was going to do. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it, to me, it feels like, especially now, right? I mean, people want to own art and people want to own clothes, and it doesn't always um, intersect, right? I mean, I, I would say there Correct. is a... You could argue that well-made clothing is art, but at the same time... Okay, like, right now in quarantine, I have maybe worn four or five different things. And it, we're on what month five or something like that or six or whatever. 19. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> and I realized like, oh, I'm just wearing what's comfortable, what's comfortable, what I enjoy. Um, it doesn't mean that I don't love some of my suits or some of my other things, but it's I don't I. It doesn't feel as comfortable, and so it's mm-hmm. you know with with that in mind, it feels like so many people sometimes are just so focused on. I don't know, maybe it's making a name for themselves or whatever that is. But at the end of the day, people still time and time again turn to what's comfortable. Absolutely. I mean, I think that they, you know, I'm I'm at fault of that too. But I kind of hold within me that I know if I get, get up and get dressed in the morning, I'm going to have a better day. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm fortunate to have the shop to come to. So that like gives me a reason to get dressed, even if right. no one's going to see it. Um but yeah, people like, I guess if they're like, you know, you want to be, you want to have the it think or whatever it is to show your status or your the fact that you're in the know of the cool shit or whatever. And I've never really been in that way. Like I'm more of a creature of habit uh, in terms of like when there's a brand that I like, like I'm all in, you know, like. 90% of my shoes are Andamula Meester from like pre 2015. Whoa. And very I'm like obsessed, big flex right? There. Like it's, but it's true. Like I got my first pair with my first adult tax return in 2010. Mm-hmm. I like went to Bergdorf and like dropped the bomb. And then now I just buy them on eBay in the real real. Okay. Because <laughs> they don't make them in the same factory anymore. Yeah. So they're not as good. But I'm like, I'm in that way. So it's like, those are the things that make me happy, even if they're not as comfortable. Right. Well, but the... Because if I'm in, like, yoga pants, I'm not going to do shit. True. But I would say, I mean, you can argue that it's comfort is is relative to each person, right? I mean, in the sense that it's you, you, you know, it's not about the actual clothes. It's about also the, the craftsmanship behind it. It's about how you feel when you wear it, right? I mean, like... A hundred percent. That's comfort. Yeah. So with that in mind, you're at CSM for how how many years? Four? So I was there for three years and then a placement year and then the fourth year. Okay. What I apologize. What's a placement year? Well, okay. So at St. Martin's, it you 
do a four-year degree, but one year is basically where you do an internship. Oh. Or two. Like, you're required to work for six months out of the year, um, and you're required to find your own internship. So what was what was the internship, and where, where did you go? Billy Reed. Oh. Wait, in London? So I came back to the U.S. Okay. For that. Um which was a weird move. Like, I, I, of course, moved to London and I was like, I'm going to be, you know, creative director of Givenchy or Balenciaga. Like, that was my thought. And then I went home for Easter break before the placement year. And um, my mom had, like, read about him in a magazine. And I was like, you know, you should go meet this guy. And I was like, Alabama? No way like i'm the girl like black hair dressed in black and like wearing your andy you know, shoes total london wearing no i wasn't okay. yet because i couldn't afford them um but you know some i can't remember i had some crazy platform shoes that like looked like the old school rick owens ones like i was very much in that like goth ninja yeah underground london csm world okay. and so um, yeah, I drove with my dad to Florence, Alabama to meet with him. Um, and they were like, yeah, like, whatever, we'll give you an internship. Like, I don't know if he had ever looked at somebody's portfolio yet. Mm. And I like showed up in my portfolio was like this thick with all these like samples and illustrations. And, um, you know, I don't think anyone knew what was going to happen, but they were like, yeah, we'll use you as an intern for six months. And I was like, okay, cool. So wait, what was that like? So you're still in school, you're interning at Billy Reed, and what are you making there? Yeah, so that summer is when I moved to do the internship. Um, and it was a wild ride, like kind of another fantasy story. So um, I lived in an apartment across the street from the shop, mm -hmm. or the office, and the store was downstairs. Um and I worked for a girl who, like, no no one was really creative there except for Billy. Like, Billy had some people that could, like, facilitate what he wanted to do, but he wasn't designing with anyone. Um, and so this girl, like, didn't like – no one liked me there, but um, not at the beginning. Uh, she was like, oh, these sweaters came in wrong. They were supposed to have four buttons instead of two, so you're going to need to sit down in the warehouse and, like, add the other buttons and I was like okay whatever like you're my boss I'll do that and then the COO at the time like heard my music in the warehouse and came around the corner and was like what are you doing down here and I was like I don't I was just doing what I was told wait heard your music and she yeah like because I was just playing music on my phone to like make the day go sure. by as I'm like just sewing buttons all day yeah. and she was like you you go to art school. You're not supposed to be sitting down here sewing buttons. Surely to God, there's better stuff for you to do. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. I've got a friend. And um, so one of the first projects I worked on with Billy was actually the CFDA presentation for uh, what was the um, – it was for Vogue for the Fashion Fund. So that was like when I started with him. And uh, so we worked together on building this whole presentation that was going to Anna Wintour's desk and like whole big deal, mm -hmm. which was super cool. Like fashion student who's like 21 years old, like in your one of your first projects is sending something to the desk of Anna Wintour. Like that's amazing. Yeah. And um, so after that, I feel like it was probably like two months and everyone was out to lunch except for Billy and Katie, the COO of the time. And I was sitting there working at the big design table and Billy came up and he was like, 
can you go to New York tomorrow? And I was like, what do you mean? Like, why? You know, no one goes to New York except for you. And so it was kind of this like sly move. And then um, he wanted me to go and like visit the factories and stuff like that. And we had really started hitting it off at that point creatively. And um, then the next week they asked if I would take a full-time position. Oh, wow. And so that was like two months in. You know, and then it was like, okay, you're senior men's director or men's designer. That's pretty impressive. It was amazing. Like, and and then, you know, life just went on for a couple of years that way. Um, And, you know, me and Billy were just best buds. But you you obviously evolve further because, I mean, if, if when you're men's director there, first off, as an aside, why men's director? Was it just because that was a role or you were more into that? Yeah, I think there was someone else doing women's mm-hmm. and I never really, I just never really wanted to go down that road. And also a lot of the women's stuff would just be kind of taken down from the men's. Um, and so, yeah, senior men's designer was the title. Um, but I think like for, I think part of that relationship was that like Billy and I could sit down and I could just like crank out sketches you know he would be talking I would be drawing and then I'd pass the sheet of paper over to him and he would he you know he would add to it or take away or whatever and it was this really amazing like uh I don't know what the word you call it but like there was just a lot of chemistry in that and I knew what he wanted to see right like I knew how to sort of visualize um everything that he was about, you know, but in terms of, of clothes. Right. But with, so, but were you always more into menswear than women's wear? Yeah. Why is that? Yeah. Um, I love the challenge that menswear brings. Like I love having a boundary, right? So it's like if menswear is in a box, like you got to kind of have one foot in that box and one foot out mm-hmm. and like how far out can you step and what can you do? How ca- like that's a, always a really fun challenge. Right. But then also I love function, right? Like I'm super tactile and I love the way things work. And that's that's what menswear is all about. Um, and I like the idea of like doing that stuff for women, too. But like men's is where I. Uh, that's just like where I go. Interesting. This week's episode is brought to you by Topper Jewelers. If you're going to buy a watch or you just want to learn more, you have to check out Topper Jewelers. With their constant collaborations with your favorite watch brands, they're not your average dealer. They recently launched their new collaboration with Oris, putting an incredible take on their Diver 65 watch. The aim of the project was to answer this question. What would it be like to buy an Oris from Topper Jewelers in 1965. The end result is a more modern case size and the absence of any simulated aging, making this a highly contemporary but classically inspired sports watch. It's a watch you truly have to see to understand. The Oris 65 Maxi has a larger dial and case profile, but yields a modern yet highly wearable wrist presence. It's a more dynamic luminous display in low light too. It's incredible. Look, many of us have always wanted that perfect vintage watch, but without fear of damaging it, well, now you have it. Learn more at topperjewelers.com and see for yourself. Oh, and did I mention this was limited? As there are only 165 of these, get them while you can because they won't last long. It ships with both bracelet 
and rubber strap, and they can be ordered at topperjewelers.com. By the way, they deliver in December, so you'll have them for the holidays. It's the new Oris Diver 65 Maxi at Topper Jewelers. That's T-O-P-P-E-R jewelers.com. Yeah, I think that's true with there is there are a lot more restrictions in terms in terms of menswear cuz you know women's wear could be I don't know. It can be anything. Yeah. It can be anything. But also like I love the way men, you know, and I'm generalizing here, but like I love the way that men shop and I love like it has to feel good. It has to fit well and it has to hold up, you know, and uh I just think I think men have such an interesting connection to their clothing, even the ones who don't think that they do. They do. And so wait, wait, it's what, really... What do you mean about like that? Well, it's like, I don't know, my stepdad who thinks he should wear a double extra large shirt, but he's a large, <laughs> you know? And like, I'll fight with him on that. I'm like, yo, dude, like, you don't need that shoulder down there. Like, you're in a balloon. Right. But that, for him, is his thing. Like, and it's... So it doesn't matter, like, taste-wise, but men are so particular um, even if it's not what I agree with. <laughs> and so it's always, it's just fun. Yeah, no, that's true. So, okay, so how many years are you at Billy Reed? So I was there for the placement year, and then um, I had to go back to school, right, to do my graduate year, my senior year, and do my collection and all of that. Were you on autopilot, um, though, in the sense of just being like, well, you know, I already have, I already have a job. You know, I already have a job here. Well, I had to consider it. But I was also like, I'm three years into Central St. Martin's. Like, I'm not going to stop. Very true. So I went I went back. Um, we worked out an awesome deal. And I continued to work. And so I became <laughs> like the midnight video or Skype at the time. Like Billy and I, you know, he'd call. He had no idea what time it was where I was. And we'd talk about coats at 1 o'clock in the morning in London. And then I also... That year did, like every month I went on a trip and usually I would use the week that I was supposed to work on my dissertation to do a Billy Reed trip. And so I would either go to Italy to the factories or to New York, depending on if it was fashion week or leading up to that or whatever, um, or I would go to Alabama occasionally. So I kind of maintained these two, you know, full-time student and full-time designer roles at the same time. Um, which luckily, like I had always worked jobs. Like I always balanced work and school. It was just never that kind of a job. Right. So, cause you're, you know, you're, it's, it's gotta be kind of weird though, because you're going to school to go get a job as a designer, but you already now have the job as a designer. And now you're trying to prove to the school that you're worthy of getting the degree to be a designer, but you're already <laughs> a designer. I know, I know, <laughs> but it's, it's a piece of paper I have, right? Like it, I'm glad I did it. Like, I had never made a collection of my own. You know, I learned so much in that year personally, you know, as well as professionally. And I also established amazing relationships with, you know, all the folks in the factory and, you know, all of those things that have come full circle again today. Yeah, I mean, that's got to be a big production help for them and the fact that you can just kind of hop over to Italy and or go to Brizzy or go to wherever places that you know yeah it made it a lot easier <laughs> you know to go to PV and to go to you know Milano Unica yeah. and Linea Pella all of those things Dang. It, made, it made a lot of sense it was a busy year <laughs> yeah I was gonna say 
What, what, what did your folks think about this? This is still obviously a far cry Oh, they cry were stoked. From... They were like, we don't have to send you money? Cool. Like, uh, yeah. you're on your own, you know? Like, that was kind of – because I was getting paid, right? And um, and the deal was that, like, I would come back and work at least another year when I graduated. Right. So um, – but I definitely, like, give credit to a lot of what I know because of that year and the year following. Um because it was such a, you know, Billy was so small at the time that I really got to learn everything between creative director and a CEO. And I was kind of that middleman in a lot of circumstances. And then also establishing these factory relationships, um, supplier relationships, all of that. So what was the difference of in terms of what you learned working at a company versus going to school? Well, so that's why they make you take that placement year. So St. Martin's does not teach business in any way. Like, I think we had one project that we had to use Illustrator, like the computer program, <laughs> and that was it. Whereas, like, in the American schools, it's like, that's all you do, yeah, right? And you're taking fashion money for fashion and costing and retail practices. There was none of that. So their thought process at the time, and I don't know if it's different, but, you know, you would go get a job, and that was going to be your business training, Oh, and that, I'll tell you right now, I I got the best business training out of anybody that was in my year. Right. Because I was so deep in this company and I learned everything. Whereas I had friends who, you know, interned at Givenchy and they sat on Illustrator for 18 hours a day and didn't get paid a dime and maybe got to watch a fitting. <laughs> you know, like it was polar opposites in right. terms of like what people – no. Right. So how many years were you there after you graduated? Um, Like a year and a half, I want to say. Mm, interesting. A year and a half, close to two years. And then I went back after I got I got poached uh, by a company here in Nashville that's no longer in existence. Um, okay. For good reason. And, okay. Uh, say no more. It was a it was a mistake very early on. Um. But at the same time, like, it was the thing that pushed me to do what I do now. Like, it kind of uh, it kind of knocked me to a place where it was like, okay, I'm in Los Angeles, like, interviewing to be a sweater designer at Vince, or I'm going to do what I actually want to do. And so I, I'm grateful that I took that other job because it led me to where I am now. What do you mean do what you want to do? What was it that you wanted to do? Savas. It's Savas? Son of a yeah. bee sting. I was do, what saying do you think? Savas? It's because It doesn't matter. It's a made-up word, it's... so you can say it how you well, want. Well, <laughs> at least you didn't name it Blamo. That's the crappiest name on the face of the earth. Sorry, no, everyone. No, it's great. Um, it's Savas. Okay. Well, no, that makes sense. Yeah, that sounds better than Savas. I, th- I mean, I go by Sav, and it's just a palindrome of Sav. Oh. Because I didn't want the company to be... Savannah Yarborough because like ew you know right well not there's nothing good, wrong with but it your doesn't name. sound good but I, yeah I feel like I don't know many people these days are averse to putting their name on it especially I don't know I don't know why I think we all know it can go sideways yes right I think that's that's the big thing it's so but you so you were saying that like you had you know, what you really want to do is your own brand. I mean, because I guess a lot of this stuff makes a ton of sense right now in, in the sense that, I mean, you're you're 
really taking all these risks on your own. You you feel empowered to go do this stuff, you know, from, again, like, it, it comes back to X Games to me. I mean, because you got to have some... <laughs> I mean, it really does. <laughs> you got to have some, you know, some serious guts to go and do that. But, you know, why, in this case, when when you launched your brand was the goal to do like bespoke leather jackets. Cause that's also a big yeah. difference. That was all I thought. Like, so uh, that was as big as I thought it would be. It was like, I'm always going to do bespoke leather jackets and that is going to be what it is. Um, and at the time that was like really big thinking, right? It was, I couldn't find anyone who was doing it really. And, you know, I was like, there, there was a jacket that I worked on with Billy um, that was the first leather jacket I ever had. And it changed my freaking life. Like that piece made me feel so different when I wore it. And I kept the original sample until the day I stopped working for him. And he asked if he could have it back um, and gave me a black one instead. But uh, it, there was an energy about it that I had never felt before with a piece of clothing. Um, what, and what do you that mean? What, it's just like when you put it on, it is so, it's like, it's just, it makes you feel good. It makes you feel powerful. It makes you feel protected, right? Like I, I do feel like there's a little bit of magic in a leather jacket. Yeah. Not just mine. I, I really think it's like whatever that jacket is for you, if it's your first one and you're 22 and all you can afford is $200 or a vintage one from a thrift store, like there's a there's a force in those things. Um, yeah, it's true. And I, I wanted to be able to share that. Yeah. I mean, the the leather jacket has always been associated with just being cool. I don't know if it's the Brando thing. Or what? Because there are so many people who never knew who Fonzie or Brando or any of these other folks were, but they still know that wearing a leather jacket is cool. Yeah, I mean, it's also like leather was the first clothing, <laughs> right? Like it goes. I mean, it, it it goes way back, right? And it's not going anywhere. You know, it may be shrinking a little bit, but like, I think everyone does understand that. It's like when a woman puts on a pair of high heels, she walks different, she feels different. Mm. Her butt looks better, you know, like whatever it is, like that changes your game. Right. It's like going from sweatpants to jeans. Like at least you're going to feel like. Yeah. So you. Something. So you're like, okay, I'm not going to take this other job or this, uh, this other thing isn't working. I'm going to start my own leather brand. Yeah. So I knew I needed some time, right? And I needed to keep that job. So I kept that job. For about three months. And for that three months, every day I would leave at five o'clock and work on the business plan because I knew I had to like get some money. I knew I had to like figure out if it could work. I knew enough about business to Mm -hmm. know that I could I wasn't just going to start like sewing something and hope for the best. Right. Um, So I took that three months and uh, just wrote it out with that company because I was like, oh, if I stay till the end of the year, I'll get a bonus and, you know, this and that and then I can leave. So that's what happened. Um, And, you know, a couple of months into that year, which was 2015, like January, Mm -hmm. February, um, I had the business plan and like went to a local bank and they were like, yeah, we'll give you a little bit of money. Wait, for real? So just as an aside, I think that's super rare because a lot of people, when they're trying to start something, they won't always say a bank. 
they'll say like a VC, which basically puts crazy, you know, growth on them, or yeah, they just that. have it hidden underneath a, you know, a blanket somewhere in their house. Well, like I, uh, I like to talk about this stuff because I do think it's important that people know you don't have to have VC money. Yeah. Or like a family backer, like because things are possible. They're a little bit probably harder in some ways and easier in others, depending on how you look at it. Um, but this bank was like founded based on songwriting. And so they would like, you know, somebody, a songwriter like knew that they had a number one hit coming out in October. No one would give them a mortgage. And so this bank was like, you know what? Like we're in Nashville. Like we need to support all these people. And so they got it. You know, they read my resume I also owned a house that I could borrow against mm-hmm. and, you know, it was like 40,000 bucks. Dang. It wasn't much, but it was enough to get the ball rolling for me. And w- what did you do with that, if you don't mind me asking? Like, was it supplies? Um, I mean, was it? I, it was a combination. Like, it was machines. It mm-hmm. was um, hiring one person to help me part-time, um, rent being able to move into the shop. We're still in the same shop today. Mm-hmm. Um, we've doubled in size now, but we're still in the same location. Materials. Um, I can't even remember what else. Well, no, I mean, <laughs> that's, that's, that, I mean that's the basics. You know, but it, it didn't last long. Yeah. What happened? It got spent. Okay. I mean, but then by the, by the time it was spent, like I was bringing in a couple of clients and like it was able to like okay, at least yeah, that's, make enough to like get right, by. right. What was it like when people start coming in, and especially people that you don't know? It was interesting. Like, in the beginning, it was very slow. You know, I started off with a $5,000 price point in the city of Nashville. Yeah. As a person that no one knew. Yeah. So it was like, who's this chick? <laughs> what drug is she on? Like, I'm going to go to New York and buy my own, you know, go to Barney's or wherever. Right. Like, and um, then, early, like at the end of that year, uh, there was a Bloomberg feature done about us and or about me at the time because I was by myself. But it was like a ten minute video. Oh wow! And they put it out. I'll never forget the Tuesday before Thanksgiving of 2015. My computer started making all these sounds, which it very rarely did, and. It was like 1130 in the morning and I had like 30 emails from the website that was like, I want a jacket, want a jacket, want a jacket. And I just like closed my laptop and left (laughs) because I was like, it's Thanksgiving week. So I've got a couple of days to figure this out. (laughs) And so I did. I like found somebody to hire to help navigate emails and clients and schedule and um. Yeah, it was crazy town. And then that was it. Like, it just took off after that. Dang. Um, yeah. Because then, I mean, you know, everyone's like, oh, yeah, she made she made leather jackets for Jack White and all these other, you know, folks in there. Because I, I always imagine, and other people I've talked to in the past, where it's like the feeling that you feel when you made your brand or or whatever it is that you, you've put out into the world and other people are getting interested in it that you have no idea who they are. It's not like, okay, you're just my friend, you're humoring me or whatever. Oh, you just listened to that and you liked it where it's like, oh, I, I don't even know who you are. 
Like, how did you find Yeah, this? I mean, we don't know who anyone is. <laughs> but at the same time, like, now I know everybody, and they're all my friends. Oh, yeah. They're, well, there you go. Win-win. Right? Which is because <laughs> it's been really, really cool. Like, it's, an, it's, it's one of the most rewarding parts about what I do is that, like, I do – all of our bespoke customers – I know them. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times I like know their kids and their wife or their husband or whoever. And it's like a whole there's a, there's really a club here. Right. You know, um, that is it's really fascinating. Yeah. Because there's still there. I talk about it like it's big. There's not that many people like it's still very small. Yeah. I um, mean, you're you're but it's it's still. And I think that's, you know, what we were talking about when we first started. I mean, finding a way to scale that into which something that it, it sounds like it's a very high touch, you know, uh, service and experience, but also in a way that you can continue growing to, um, you know, employ others and and also put more of your product out there. I mean, you, it's totally. very difficult to scale a single human, you know, and, and a lot yeah, of times. Yeah, you can't. <laughs> so. But we have to do that. Like a lot of people still will like watch that video on YouTube and think that that's still the case. Um that I'm alone in a workshop, like making things. <laughs> and we have to kind of teach them out of that. Mm-hmm. And like yesterday, um, Yasmin, who does all of our like administrative stuff, she was like, what do these people think you are? <laughs> like you're on Instagram messaging them all the time. You're available everywhere. You're making this, you're doing that. Like the, people are crazy. Well, like they, you know, they think that I'm doing all those things. And it's like that stuff doesn't fit all in one human's lap in one day. Exactly. No I way. think... I think there, and this is the the tough part, and it's it's not fair, but it happens to where there is an expectation of access that mm-hmm. you know I should be able to uh, message you at any and all times of the day, or I should right. be able to keep. Um, you know, when I worked at this clothing store, um, we did bespoke stuff, and okay. a lot of times, I mean, this was suiting, but people would come in and they would just want to keep changing and changing and changing and changing and changing, and we were just like, "Well, not allowed." Yeah, yeah, and right. Well, and that's the tough part is like, how do you serve the customer the best by also saying no, and um, and that that's a tough thing. It it is tough, and you know, sometimes I'll do things that I don't love. Um, rarely, like I've you know, we've created a lot of quote policies okay based on bad experiences with people um, <laughs> sounds like a growing to business where that's good i yeah where i now like i know where to draw my lines right mm. and like if a client is pushing me in one direction if i don't want to go down that direction i'll just give them alternative ideas that i feel more comfortable with or if it's a new direction for me and i'm like oh you know what that could be pretty cool like i'll say to them I've never done this before like this so that your process is going to take longer. It might cost you a little bit more money, but like I'm down to try if you are. Yeah. And that, that is like that summary is the bespoke experience. And, and I, and I hope what more and more people are able to learn if you, you know, when you get, if you ever get the opportunity to do it is it is a journey with you and the artisan and the craftsperson. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. I mean, we have some people change their minds, but not usually. I mean, like since we make canvas garments, they do have an opportunity to like see and feel it. Mm. And like if the fit is perfect and you keep asking me to make another canvas and another canvas and another canvas, like round three, you're paying for each one. (laughs) Because just to tweak a pocket, like I know it'll be right when we cut it in leather, but like that's a whole other day Day and a half in the workshop. Yeah. 
that we have to be paid for that wasn't planned for in your actual price yeah and i, th- I think um, that's always the thing is kind of such a wake-up call for folks because they'll see the price of something and they're like oh this this must be highway robbery and it's like well no because we're you're also building in the fact that there's going to be changes that are going to have to be made but it, there's a limit to those changes i mean and I, i'll say this just because i've seen it happen with so many different you know artisans and craftsmen throughout my you know little career of of, of clothes where it's like usually get a couple modifications and then that's it. But I think the yeah. weirdest thing, and I don't know if you see this, is I I remember um, talking to an Italian tailor, and he was discussing um, how in Italy, at least for him, this is what he was saying, if you told someone no, they would be like, okay, fine. And he's mm. like, but in America, if I tell a customer no, like, they want it more. And he was like, this is this is weird. He was like, the worst thing you, you can do to an American consumer is say no to the sale and it like turns something on the my one of my lines <laughs> that i've learned from 2020 and this is what we said we probably weren't going to talk about but american exceptionalism is a real thing interesting the rules don't apply to us i have benefited from being that way i have also suffered and i think that's the case for a lot of people yeah you know but like that's i agree with him yeah because he was just like and not everybody's like that but like well, There's always a way around the rules is kind of yes, exactly an it, American attitude. Well, in in a specific, more specifically, and, I, and just so folks have context, obviously, because they've been listening to this entire thing, it, in terms of a, you know, high end luxury product, which is I mean, which is what you make. It's, it's beautiful. It's incredible. But it is a luxury product. It's a fantastic thing. And I mean that in a in a loving way versus a damning way. And I think when people who can uh, take part in that luxury product experience, a lot of times they think the privilege or the money that they have buys them all these other things. Buys them that. Because the rest of the world is telling them that. You know, right. like, well, I have this card and it's this color, which means I get to do this. And I get to go to the front of this line and I get to do this. So if you tell me no, that you can't make, this is an example, um, a suit in a super 200s with my with fabric with my name on it, and I want 30 of them, and I want them done in a year, um, or I, I want them done in six months, and you're saying no, like, how much more do I need to pay to make it happen? Or, right. you know, and that's... How can I get around that? Exactly. How can I make you do that? Yeah, I mean, we uh, we deal with that some. I mean, I think... You know, I I sort of fall into an interesting place that some days for me is a challenge and other days is a benefit. Mm -hmm. Um, But like if you go into a tailor shop and you've got your old Italian guy telling you no, chances are you're going to listen. Right. Because like he's an old dude who knows his shit. I deal with that a lot, I think, because of being a young female. Right. Like it's. Oh, yeah. There, there's a, like, I mean, I had a guy one time come in and say, like, I want to buy an alligator jacket. And I was like, okay, you know, that's <laughs> going to be like $60,000, yeah. you know, like that I, I lit up. And then he was like, well, where are you buying the skins from and this and this and this? And, he, you know, I said, well, look, like, fair enough. Like, I buy them from American Tanning in Georgia. Like, you know, the markup's only going to be so much because I'm not insane and, well, and also, also, that's the only place you can get them, right? But he, I said to him, I said, look, I said, if you want to go visit, I'm happy to connect you with them and you can go pick out your own skins. That's fine. And he said, well, there's no point in that because then you'll just be getting a cut. 
And I was like, I beg your pardon. <laughs> like, I was just going to tell you where to go, man. Like, but you don't trust me. And he was like, well, you know, I shop on Fifth Avenue at like whatever the other, the guy, there's somebody, some company, I can't remember what it's called that makes all these like exotic leather jackets, about. you know, and it's very Fifth Avenue. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, I don't want you. Like, I, you may be buying a $60,000 jacket. I don't want to make it for you. Yeah. And I like, because I don't want to deal with you. I know you. I Get out. <laughs> yeah. I, I think that's the craftspeople also need to have the right to say no, because also at the end of the day, mm -hmm. they may be buying it, but you're putting your name on it. And that, you know, that, that, that. And they're the billboard. Yeah, exactly. I don't want that representing me. Yeah. I mean, it's tough when. You know, a friend of mine was selling clothes and he was, he'd sold a bunch of stuff to a certain person and he found out that that person was affiliated with all these other things and he was mm. like really torn about it because it was a big client for him. I've got one of those. Yeah. He's like, I'm torn with this because this is, you know, this is how I make my living. But also, and I think a lot of this is happening more right now into which people are realizing everything that they kind of interact with and touch becomes a bit of a representation of them, especially as a brand, because like, absolutely, like we said when we first started talking, is people want to purchase from people, and and they they there's a very, and w when I say that I mean like I want to buy a Savas leather jacket, but I want Savannah to measure me, and I want her, and I want to talk to her, and maybe like tell her some cool things that I like, and we're gonna have this process mm -hmm. together, and then we're gonna be best friends, and then we're gonna hang, you know, and. While that's ideal, that's that's just very, very difficult, and it's tough to have that it's demand. It's a lot to expect from someone. Yes. Like, I, I mean, there's a lot of people, I think, more so than them pay, thinking that they're paying for being able to do whatever they want. In a <laughs> lot of circumstances, it's them being able to, like, pay for a friendship. Yeah, that's a whole other and can I'm like, of worms. <laughs> I'm like, I like you, dude, and that's fine. Yeah. But, like, stop texting. <laughs> Stop Instagram messaging or whatever, email. Like, I don't care that much. Yeah. And that's like, I want you to be well. I want you to love what I make for you. And I want you to love that experience. But like, you don't get to buy me. Yeah. You get me for the time that I allotted for you that day. And that that's that's the tough part because, you know, the, the response to that argument is always like, well, like, if you can't take it, you shouldn't, you shouldn't be in this industry. And that, you know... And yeah. that is the the most frustrating thing because I, I had that happen to me. And I'll be honest, like I'm a privileged white dude in which, you know, there's I have so much I've had so many great things happen to me where but like people would just be like, well, you know, if, if this is how business should be done, you know, maybe you need to rethink your career, you know, or maybe and you're just like, yeah. oh, man. This isn't this isn't people, why I got into this. <laughs> I want to make clothes and I want to make people happy. Like why are we why are we involved in all yeah, these Yeah, why other make it now? so complicated? So anyway, I'll get yeah, off my soapbox. No but sometimes like I mean, I'll have, you know, people I remember this one person like they push me on their embroidery, right? Like and cuz we do chain stitch embroidery on the interiors mm -hmm. and I I have a policy. Like, I don't do human faces. Like, I, I don't want to do human faces. They are not going to look like the human. I know that. Sure. It's like a cartoon, and it's going to look whack, and we don't need that anyway. <laughs> okay. Adamant. Like, you got to do it. You got to do it. I've cut it down to four posterized layers. Like, just do it. And then, and I said, like, look, I do not think this is a good idea. I think you need to reevaluate your embroidery and let me know what you want to do. No, just do it. It's going to be amazing. That's what they said. 
then I got an email like, there's no soul in this jacket. I can tell you didn't want to do it, you know, and I was like, backing away. Yeah, that's tough. I just spent 60 hours working on something for you. <laughs> I'm going to back out now. Yeah. Sorry, you don't like it. That's very difficult. So when I talk about like the magic and the power in jackets, I think people really do feel strong emotional connections to them, which is amazing. But sometimes it can go like a bit wackadoo. Yeah, because I, I think the thing is, too, is be like, well, would you say this to Rick Owens? Are you going to email Rick Owens and be like, hey, man, I got the I got your blistered lamb um, Stooges jacket <laughs> and it doesn't feel like and there I was don't much, feel your soul. And, yeah. And it doesn't feel like there was much heart and soul in it. Um, like ultimately we make clothing. <laughs> it's just a jacket. Like as as much as I love it and I believe in leather jackets, it is just a leather jacket. Right. Don't forget that. Like it's a special one and you love it. But it's a piece of clothing. Right. That's tough. That is very, very tough. I, I would. It's a fine line. Yeah, I, I do not envy the um, customer stuff for that. And I think that's the stuff to jump back to like the education and, and also with what you're doing at Billy Reed. That's some of the things when when you have the direct to consumer relationship, the, the um, triaging, for lack of a better term, uh, of what it takes to keep people happy and the customer relations is it is a challenge and i and i salute you for also having your own convictions and morals of how you want to operate your business thank you i mean some days i do feel like i just have to be like look you're in my house yeah like you're coming like yes you're paying me to do something but like you're coming to me for a reason mhm so like let me do what i do mhm yeah well, b- before we, you know, we wrap, there's a few other things I want to chat with you sure. about because it's been really cool to see you expand further into ready to wear, especially with things like the the leather, excuse my, like the shirt jacket, you know mm-hmm. what I'm talking about? Like that's, yeah. that's killer. Like, is that the plan to do more products that are more like ready to wear or, or even outside of leather or what? Yeah. So, I mean, ultimately in my mind, I have a whole vision of like head to toe and all the things that I want to see happen. Um, however, I know what it's like to work for a brand that does every category under the sun Mm -hmm. and how hard it is to make sure you do all of those things well Mm. and very well. And I feel that we have set the bar for ourselves starting out where we started out in terms of quality and fit and all of that stuff. And so I kind of have the idea of like introducing the right product once we know we've got it right. Hmm. And it doesn't, it's not seasonal. It's not anything besides the fact that like, I believe this needs to go out into the world. Let's, let's try it. Let's make 10 and see if we sell them. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, that sort of a thing. But I, we're teetering on some other new stuff that is exciting. So we're working on um, my first shoe, oh. which is really, really exciting and something I've wanted to do since day one. Is this the, um, is this the Andy inspired? N- not really, because okay. um, Andy did what she did. And this is actually, <laughs> this, this falls into the category of what I believe is a pinnacle part of Savas, is that it is... I don't want to call it androgynous, but it I, it goes men's and women's, and it does it in a way that's like a lot of times when you see a photo of one of our jackets, like you can't tell. Yes. Right? Yeah, I if agree. It, if it's, you know, because that's what I am. That's how I design. That's, you know, sort of in my blood. And um, 
And so this is like a unisex boot mm. um, that we're going to do men's sizes, women's sizes, one color, one, you know, we're, like it is very specific. Mm-hmm. And so I'm really excited about that. Um, you know, so again, it's just going to be like one product here or there. And of course, I would love to make all kinds of stuff, but I have to be realistic, you know, about being a self-funded tiny business. Like I can only also afford to develop so much. I don't have time to make a bunch of samples. Yeah. You know? And I wonder, and this is just from my perspective, that that's also super helpful in you because because you don't have a ton of money in front of you and you don't be like, hey, I need to get to 10x in two years. Um, therefore, I'm going to make all these brand compromises to get there to where, I mean, you you feel like you're like, look, we have this much money. We have these restrictions. Mm-hmm. We're going to make what we think is the best and we're going to slowly do this bit by bit. Right. I mean, that is, it is something that I have fought every year. Because mm. I, I mean, as a typical, like, I don't want to say entrepreneur, but like, unfortunately, that is what I am mm-hmm. in some ways. But like, some nights I'm going to bed and I'm like, damn, I just need to call that guy. Like, I just need to take on that investment and just do mm. it. And like, the next morning I wake up and I'm like, I'm so glad I don't have to report financials to anyone. You know, like, yeah, I, I never can make that jump of like, because it does change your whole motivation. And so right. every time that I look back, I'm like, oh, I'm so glad I didn't. I stopped with the growth plan mm. because look at what amazing things have happened without it, you know. And um, I don't know, maybe that'll change one day, but that's kind of where I am today. Like, I just am like, I want to do it myself. Yeah. Because I don't want to be responsible for like someone else's money yeah well <laughs> you know like it's weird well, for me and it's interesting too because in other countries um so like hiroshi fujiwara who's like the godfather mm. of harajuku in japan and you know fantastic designer and stuff like he's had a lot of opportunities pre-fragment and pre all these things where people came to him and they're like hey we have all this money we're gonna fund you we have it and he would be like it, it it was it's so foreign to him in his business and mindset to take outside capital to make something. He's like, you make you spend the money that you have to make what you can, and what's best is what comes from it. Versus, in, in a lot of ways, he you know, and and maybe I'm editorializing when I say this, but he he communicated that like if you have all this money, like it's easier on you because you can just kind of do whatever you want. Mistakes don't really matter. And he's like, if we make the wrong decision, we feel it, and that affects how we how we evolve as a company later. It affects everything. Yeah. You know, and sometimes in good and bad. Like, sometimes I'm like, man, I really want to make this thing, but, like, I can't, you know? Like, it's it makes you far more selective, I think, creatively with, like, what you do and how you spend your time. Um, and also, you, like, have to believe in whatever it is you're about to put out. Yeah. Because you got a lot more to lose. Then, like, if somebody you know, invested in me and then wanted to see full collections every season. Like, I would go nuts. Yeah. And that would mean I would have to design 10 jackets. And you know what? Probably only four of them are going to be awesome. Right. If that. Right. And I'd rather just put the the four out and be done. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. why bother to develop all the other fluff that's not going to happen? And I think a lot of brands are learning that now. They're really skipped like scaling back very true you know merch plans and like because it's crazy i mean even like the big houses you see what's been you know happening on like the quarantine covid runways or whatever they're being called and it's like oh 
there's a lot of similarities here. They're all things that are, you know, not too risky, like not, you know, not, or something's done in 10 colors yes. instead of 10 different things. Yeah. Lots, lots of navy, white and black, you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the things that's like, these are the high skew selling. Totally. <laughs> now we're doing mostly all virtual fittings. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's, I mean, is that, that is a great thing. Like, how, so wait, how are you adjusting with non in-person stuff? So wait, what's a virtual fitting? So um, we started working on this last year with a couple of bespoke and made-to-measure clients um, who didn't want to travel to Nashville to get a fitting Fair. or who couldn't meet me wherever I was. And so we kind of test tested the waters on trying jackets on remotely. Um, and obviously, we've spent the last three years developing our made-to-measure block patterns, just standard sizes. And so early February was kind of when things started hitting in Italy. And I started freaking out because that was where all of our tanneries are. And I knew that at some point it was going to hit us too. And so I one day decided that we would just launch this. <laughs> I didn't tell the team. it. I just like put it on Instagram and made a tab on the website. I was like, we're now doing virtual fittings. <laughs> okay. And that was like mid-February. And so... But I could just see that, like, we weren't going to be able to be in business if I couldn't figure out a way to still see our clients. For sure. And so, you know, I felt confident with what we had been doing in the past year and, like, leaning up leading up to that anyways. Because um, we have a lot of people from all over the world who were like, I want a jacket, but, like, I live in Shanghai, you know? Like, yeah. So now we're – this program is really awesome. Um you know, we're doing bespoke stuff and made-to-measure stuff. Uh, the bespoke stuff takes a lot longer because sure. we have to do a lot more work, you know, in terms of I can't see you. Um, but basically, we we put together like two block sizes for you depending on what size you typically wear. Um, with made-to-measure, you pick the style that you want. But these are just blank canvas jackets with a zip up the middle. They don't have any design details in them. And then I do video calls where, you know, I get you to measure yourself and I teach you how to do that mm. or someone who's with you. Um, same thing, like in the kit, you know, you get chalk, you get tape, you get um, safety pins, all of that. And so I, I basically am like educating you on how to fit something, oh, wow. which has been really cool. And you also get leather swatches, lining options, um, and hardware options. And what's been really interesting is that like, you know, it's mostly men doing this, which 70% of our business is men anyways. But um, you, I think they're enjoying it more because, like, we're still getting that personal connection, right? We're, we're seeing each other and talking to each other. But you get to have your swatches at home. And we right. send, like, big cuttings. These aren't, like, little one-inch squares. Like, you get to see it and feel it. And I think people are really loving being, being able to, like, take that into their wardrobe and go, like, you know – What's going to be best? And I usually make them sit with it for a couple of days before we do the video call. Right. Um, and it's working really well. And it's really like a lot of our repeat clients are working that way, which we already have their fits and patterns. So that's super easy. But so many new people. That's awesome. Are, are ordering. And it's because like now, like COVID or not, we've given them a way to get our product. Yeah. Without having to like take a trip to Nashville, which is a lot to ask someone to do. Yeah. But, Even in normal times. But you are making, you are doing some traveling for stuff, are you not? Or 
Yeah, I've been going to LA this year. Okay. Um, I have not been to New York this right. year, which is a first. Normally, I do like eight trips to New York. Well, um, as of this current moment, if you were to come to New York, you'd have to stay for two weeks. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't work. Um, and I can kind of like sneak away to LA and um, right. have some friends that have spaces for me to set up in, mm-hmm. you know, and just kind of wing it and see people. But I've only done two of those trips this year to see clients. Yeah. Um, just because everybody's avoiding in-person stuff. Yeah, I mean, it uh, makes perfect sense. So, But, you know, it's 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 working really well. And I think it's ultimately been like a really good response, you know, of, of being able to service, you know, and work with people from different places. Well, I think, too, a lot of people are taking a look at their wardrobe and they're being like, what? Okay, there's a few people who like on our Slack group and a few other stuff. We're like, okay, I'm going to I'm going to start over. And so I'm just going to do the, you know, the best of this. And so people are like, I want a leather jacket. I want uh, denim jeans. I want black t-shirt. I want, you know, like all these yeah. things that are They're getting the like classics. icon pieces, yes. the stable items. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely a lot of that happening um, just in terms of also too, like, you know what? I don't, I think a lot of us are going, I don't need this shit. Like, we have too many clothes in our <laughs> yeah. wardrobe. Yeah, yeah. I don't need any of it. I'm going to throw everything away. And then you, you donate it or you do whatever. And then you go, oh my God, I don't have anything. <laughs> and so it's kind of this weird sort of reevaluating ourselves and what we wear. Or, you know, like you said, just looking and going, I really only need these 15 items. Like, yeah. what are they? Yeah. And, um, you know, I also talked to a client the other day and he was like, now that I don't commute into D.C. every day, like, my credit card bill is 20% of what it used to be. Like, I've got extra cash right. because I'm not spending on drinks and dinner and breakfast and lunch and, like, all the other daily things of living in a city. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, you know, everybody's different, but it's been really great. Nice. Well, that's I'm glad to hear that business is, is chugging along and, and uh, especially with 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 what you're doing and that's that's really fantastic yeah it's been a a surprisingly nice year in some ways good and i've been grateful for the fact that people you know are you know wanting to buy from a person and not buy from you know just a website yeah um or you know a big retailer or whatever it's i think people have have really kind of been over backwards for us which has been amazing and it's I'm very That's grateful awesome. for that. So, well, yeah. it was it was really good chatting with you. Yes, thank you for having me. Of course, bye. You've been listening to Blamo. Our theme music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. We're edited by Brendan Finn, and we're produced by Blamo Media. You can follow along with us on Instagram at Blamo Podcast and leave a review for us on your favorite podcast app. If you want even more Blammo, head over to patreon.com forward slash Blammo to join the Blam fam. You'll get access to additional interviews, a community slack with tons of us talking about God knows what, special events, and more. And best of all, you're supporting the show. So join it. It's great. We love you. We'll see you soon.